Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland. And today I am back with something a little bit different. Um, I know it has been almost two months since I published my last episode of the podcast. Um, so sorry about that. Um, I was busy with other things, and you know how it is. Anyway, but um, I'm going to try to get back into more regularly um, recording episodes of the podcast and doing YouTube more regularly if you are if you care about that and all that sort of stuff. This episode is going to be a little different than my usual fare because it is an interview or a, a conversation with my buddy Jason Hobbs. Um, you guys all know Hobbs. He does um, Hobbs and Friends and also um, Random Screed and... Um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast knows about Jason Hobbs. Um, but anyway, I did a, I had a, a kind of um, conversation with him about a whole bunch of different stuff. The sort of core of it is kind of what we played in 2021 and what we want to play in 2022. Uh, play or run, I guess to say. Um, although there's a lot of other stuff that we talked about, a lot of kind of ideas about themes in RPGs and plenty of discussion about kind of our own personal lives. Um, there's some fairly heavy stuff about mental health. So just be aware of that. I think it's pretty early in the, um, the discussion too. So it's going to come up right away. But anyway, um, I thought I would put this out for you guys and you guys can listen to it if you are interested or, you know, if not, you don't have to listen to it, I guess, um, all of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this uh, conversation with my buddy Jason Hobbs, and um, hopefully tomorrow or in a couple of days, I will have a, uh, a more traditional episode of the podcast for you guys, kind of talking about where I've been and what I've been thinking about and all of that sort of stuff. All right, let's get into it. All right, so I am here joined by my buddy Jason Hobbs. You guys all know him because he's, he's you know, Random Screed and Hobbs665 on Twitch, and he's got a YouTube channel where he posts actual plays. And he also had a, a his own big podcast for a while, right? Hobbs, Hobbs and Friends, I think, was the name. Was that a big podcast? It, apparently it was big, right? Isn't it still big? Some people say so. I don't know how to judge these things. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, Hobbs is here with me. You can't see, but he's got a cat lying across his shoulders. Um, and we're going to talk about like games and stuff. And kind of what, what I told Hobbs is that I wanted to do an episode of like sort of for lack of a better term, kind of uh, a bit of recap on like the past year, thinking about like games we played, things we liked, things we didn't like, um, kind of reflecting on the year that has gone by. It seems like, you know, near, I guess it's January 7th, so it's not quite just the new year yet, but it's still pretty close. So, you know, reflecting on what has happened in the past year in terms of gaming, and then also talking about like what we're excited about for the next year, you know, games that we want to run or games that we want to play or who knows what all. <laughs> I think it's important, man. You should reflect on uh, where you've been and where you're going. Exactly. It is. How, otherwise, how do you know when you get there? Precisely. 
This is my nice. dad. So my dad is an engineer, and one of his favorite sayings is, um, "No time to sharpen the saw. Got all this wood to cut." And the idea being, as a, a um, conceptually, the idea of not having any allotted um, time or energy to put towards the kind of the part of the task that isn't directly co accomplishing the task, right? And and mm -hmm. his point is that like that's really dumb, and you know you should build in enough time to do the job efficiently which means you do some planning ahead of time. And even though that's not like, you know, directly accomplishing the task, that is part of accomplishing the task efficiently. And I really believe in that. And so this is, you know, accomplishing the task of having fun in games with friends efficiently. Man, it, uh, it's way harder to do than you might think to <laughs> have fun with friends playing yeah, games. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like... Uh, it's it can be remarkably difficult which is kind of an interesting thing and who knows maybe we'll talk about that once we're done talking about it. or maybe that'll be like the subject of 2021 because i think it's fair to say that there was a fair bit of that this past year at least for me what do you think uh this year was or 2021 was kind of really special because 2020 was right at the beginning of covid and all that so and then um I personally, in my own life, I was having problems at home and was secluded into my own room. So I really pushed early in 2021 and ran tons of games, played tons of games. Like, I mean, I was playing on an average at least a game a day in the early in the year. And then after March, when I moved out, I didn't really hardly play a game for eight months. Yep. So <laughs> it was definitely some highs and lows. Whoa, there was a cat. Highs and lows there. Well, and I haven't had, I didn't have quite that sharp of a shift, I think, in many ways. Well, I had, I had a couple of shifts. The big one mm -hmm. for me is, I don't remember if we talked about this, but I had sort of a, a breakdown back in end of October, beginning of November, I think. I ended up spending a couple of, I spent three days in uh, a, a hospital for mental health because my depression was... Um, really i was really struggling in a lot of ways and it, it had been going on for a while and i got a lot of really good help both directly from them and from a lot of the other people in my life like um my my apartment was a colossal mess and i just didn't have the the willpower to deal with it so i kept getting worse and all that sort of stuff so for instance like my parents helped me you know clean up and fix things and get everything back in a like actual livable condition which helps a lot for your mental health right it's one of those things yeah. that like you know sometimes you don't have it right no time to sharpen the saw got all this wood to cut it's back to that sort of thing right you don't have the energy to keep your living space in good condition so it deteriorates so you feel shitty so you don't have the energy to help it out right it's when you can't get out of bed it's super hard to make it yeah yeah it's pretty awful anyway so the point being that uh since then i have not played nearly as many games, I will say. Um, so that was kind of my my sharp shift, it seems like. Although I have I have played some games since then. I didn't quite go to no games for eight months, but um, it was definitely a big... Uh, it was a big shift in, in my life for a number of reasons. Um, so, you know. This got way more serious than I expected. It got pretty serious, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, that's all right though. That's okay. Yeah, I, people know what to. The serious stuff is going to come up on my podcast, right? That I, I and 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 on your stuff too, right? Because I think yep, for sure. To be honest, uh, Random Screen has been a big inspiration for me for being able to talk about things like serious mental health struggles online and and share that with people because you do a good job of, of talking about that sort of thing in my opinion so guys if you're not wow. listening to random screed you should um hobbs i think does a, a a good job of being open about his particular struggles in a way that is um good to hear about you know non-judgmental um but um life-affirming right I try to be. That's what I always say. If it helps one person, I'm going to keep doing, even if it's only me. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I'm, I, like I said, I'm really inspired by that. And that's part of why I feel like I, I should, going forward, I want to do a better job of talking about that sort of stuff on, on my podcast, too, to just have that be part of the discussion is how is my mental health doing? What am I doing for it? And, and how can I kind of help other people through sharing my own experience, right? That's, and, and help myself through sharing it too, because it, right, it's not, it, one of, I think, the real difficulties of mental health-related issues is the sense of isolation that can come with it, right? Especially if you do not have a way to put into words what you are experiencing and feel like nobody else around you understands and all that sort of stuff. That is, um, that re can really make something that is possible to deal with impossible to deal with, right? That, that yeah, sense, obviously. Yeah. I think we're both examples of that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it is a. Uh, it, it can be so debilitating that it, you can't believe that anyone is possibly surviving if they're feeling the way that you do. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's and it's and it. I and I think that's part of why I really, like I said, I really want to get into the habit of uh, sharing and talking about it and doing a better job of kind of talking about it for myself because I think it helps for me to talk about it and also talking about it so that hopefully other people who are experiencing anything like what I'm going through have that as a resource as well, right? Anyway, but we don't, we don't have to just talk about mental health issues. Um, so good because we ain't got enough time in the day for that. That's like that, asking what the OSR is. That is very true. Uh, it would be <laughs> a long time. Anyway, um, what sort of games did you play this year, Hobbs? We're talking 2021, right? 2021. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, last year now. Right. So I would say um, the games that I played the most were probably uh, or ran the most. I would say is Low Fantasy Gaming by Pickpocket Press. My man, Steve Gradzicki, and uh, Old School Essentials. Yep. That's, I mean, that's kind of, I think, what I've become known for. I'd like to maybe switch that up in 2022, which I think we'll get into, but uh, I would have to say. And then because I play a lot, both of us, and probably met through Kevin's stuff, I mean, a lot of um, second edition. Um, is that about it? What else did we play with Kevin? A lot of second Pathfinder, edition. mostly second some, edition. Some I like Pathfindery stuff, Pathfinder Two, I think. Um, a little bit of like Suede, some Savage Worlds. Yeah, some Savage Worlds, and a couple other, you know, one-off. We, we were talking about like the Pendragon one-shot that we did earlier mm -hmm. in 2021 at one point. So there are a couple of a couple of those sorts of things, but a lot of but, second edition, 
right? Yeah, a little 5e. Yeah. A little 5e. I, I mean, I barely played any face-to-face games like with yeah. other people that I was at the same table with, which I had done some Castles and Crusades before that, but hardly none. But low fantasy gaming and old school essentials is primarily what I run, and I'm I think I probably run a lot more than I play. I don't I don't know though. In early in early March I wasn't. I mean I was playing at Kevin three times or four times a week. So <laughs> yeah, but. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'd be curious to try to when I in the beginning of the year, I was really doing a good job because I had to have a calendar, hard copy calendar right on my desk to be able to figure out when I was supposed to be playing games. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I was keeping pretty good track. But then during all my moves, I lost track of those calendars. So I don't necessarily have what I thought I would have. But I mean, I was 80 hours plus easily a, a month mm-hmm. for a while of just gaming. Yep. Which is it's a lot, right? That's like, right? Because 40 hours a week is a full-time job. So 80 hours in a month is mm-hmm. like hack that. When you think about that you're doing at least 40 hours a week working and 80 hours a week gaming and not counting any prep or yep, yep. reading or doing podcasts or yeah, doing book review, you know, literary live shows, you know, that sort of thing. Yep, yep. Yeah. So... I guess I should talk about some of the stuff that I did. Yeah, I wasn't supposed to ask you any pointed questions, or I would have yeah, to lead into that. But it's okay. I can <laughs> I can volunteer some information. Um, All right, go ahead. Let's see. So I, yeah, I played a bunch of the various things on the the dungeon with the Dungeon Musings crew. A um, lot of AD and D Second Edition in particular, but a, a number of other things that got um, some time. Um, in terms of stuff that I ran, there's couple that I was doing. I did a um, fairly short-lived Ash campaign with um, Che Webster and a couple others from his Discord. Um, I think we only got... So the original idea was to do it with a system that I was working on that was a hack of Blade of the Iron Throne, which is itself um, sort of an evolution of the Riddle of Steel. Um, And then I sort of took a look, a further look at it after character creation and said, I don't know that this is going to work quite right for what I want to do. And so then we switched over to Ash, which worked fairly well. We didn't really, one of the things about it is that because Ash is a class-based system and um, the Blade of the Iron Throne and the Riddle of Steel are not, we had kind of a an imbalance in terms of classes. Like we didn't have any character with like an innate healing ability, which is not impossible to play without in ash um and and ash is more forgiving than or at least ash second edition i haven't read the third edition books at all yet but um it's not it's more forgiving than some old school games right you you heal like your full hit die plus constitution modifier per day instead of like one hit point per day which is is better but it's still pretty rough to like go on an actual dungeon delve without any type of healing resource at all, other than kind of like random potions that you find or anything like that. And and that well, you know, yeah. some people would say uh, healing. I'm looking at you, Taylor. Clerics wear ring mail. Healing is one of the worst second things that they ever put into D and D. Thieves being the first. <laughs> I think that. I don't know. I think, I think there's so. My 
take on that would be that I think there is a case to be made that healing is actually not very good for gaming as a sort of like that there's a, a sort of subset of games that shouldn't have healing. I don't think that D&D fits into that subset. I think mm. that the sh- well, not anymore, probably. But Certainly not I've, anymore. But even even in the old school games, I think that there's a lot to say about like the. I think one of the things um, about healing is that it is one of the few places where there is actual kind of like character decisions, player decisions to be made surrounding hit points. Right, that like when you get into it, the D and D like roll a D twenty to try to hit their AC doesn't have a lot of like character decision making. Right, you don't you don't really and like armor sometimes there are extra rules, but in general, most everybody wears like the heaviest armor that they can afford, and that doesn't yeah. give them a big penalty for the other stuff. So not having any healing resources basically to me means that there isn't really anything you can, you don't really interact with hit points at all other than like tracking as they go down, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? If you look at like Call of Cthulhu sanity, I think there's a a case to be made that that's sort of how sanity works in Call of Cthulhu and that that's central to the experience of Call of Cthulhu. Right, is this idea of a gradual loss of sanity over time as the characters do things? But I'm not sure that that fits very well in D and D. Well, I well, I guess my counterpoint to that would be you are then saying that a large portion of the game is combat and uh, maybe getting rid of the other pillars of play, which I understand because almost all of the rules surround combat. Mm -hmm. I get, I get all that. But that doesn't mean that's the way everyone runs their D&D game. Yeah. Um, like, we've talked about this, obviously, ad nauseum, especially recently, I think, when we're talking about exploration yeah. as a pillar. And you call it archaeology. I call it lore. And the idea of, you know, how important that is to a game. And it all yeah. depends on how people want to play, right? Um, I mean, I don't want to get into a big, long thing about This would be like a perfect bygone exhumations topic, mm-hmm. honestly healing in games or what the thieves did to the games or Mm -hmm. if they're necessary or if they're a detriment to um, a good game, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it all I know that you are interested and so am I in uh, tactical decision making processes, which really aren't on a character sheet in most D&D derivatives. Right. Like you say, it's just hit points where the best armor get the best. best Yeah, yeah, I think that's all there is to it. I'm really interested in this idea of mechanized player decisions, right? That the the game is about presenting players with interesting decisions to make and then having something mechanical to give weight to those decisions. Yeah, codified is what I like the term I like to use in that situation. Codified things as opposed to rulings, not rules, which would be the old school way of doing it. But I think there's definitely something to be said about codifying those ways, like the style of play that you're looking for. Of course, now you're narrowing the focus of your game, the more you codify things because some people don't want to play the game that way. But if you're codifying them and expecting them to use those rules, now you're narrowing your, you know, the group or your customer base, I guess, because mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons I love low fantasy gaming, because I feel like a lot of that stuff has been codified in a way that makes it more interesting. It's mm-hmm. still a pretty lease, a loose codification, mm-hmm. but it exists and it's not always just some GM arbitrarily making up a thing that they forget the next time they play. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's a I think that's a good point. And I think that's a fair defense of of the the concept of you know why thieves and healing are in some ways not good for the game. <laughs> and, and I think I, I will say I think one of the things that sometimes gets lost in this discussion is the difference between how the game has evolved and the remarkable ability to play all of the different versions of it that we have now. I think one of the things that's kind of kick-started, I, I, I was not involved in the hobby when the OSR sort of first got started, but I suspect that one of the things that got the retro clones going was that a lot of those old school games were relatively inaccessible if you didn't have an old copy from way back when they were originally being printed by TSR. Nowadays, oh, they're not quite exactly. as inaccessible, but that, that I think there was a, I think one of the things that has changed dramatically is that access to both the kind of more modern design of D&D and the sort of old school design of D&D has improved a lot in. Yeah. And all the ones in between. And everything in between, <laughs> right? It is, yeah. it is much more possible to find the specific game that you're looking for for whatever you want to play nowadays than yeah. it was, you know, even it's, 10 years it's, ago. It's uh, more possible with accessibility, but unfortunately still just as difficult to define what that is. It is, it is still very difficult <laughs> to define what it is you're looking for. And there is a, a trade-off to um, volume, right? Like it's the same way that like, you know, the idea of having a library full of 10,000 books versus having a library of the one book that you specifically need, right? A library of 10,000 books needs a librarian versus a library of 10 books doesn't really, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we have become, as a result, partly of accessibility, more dependent on all of the, you know, either doing a lot of your own research or, you know, review sites or Twitter threads or whatever it is that you use to sift through the the kind of extreme mass of things that are available for the hobby, right? Yeah. How does the horse get through the chaff to actually get the nutrients other yep. than just wiggling their nose through it? And we don't have enough time in the day. We're trying to play games. We're trying to write games. We're trying to have a day job because you don't make enough money doing the others <laughs> enough. Yep. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a wicked circle and one that uh, I know both of us are constantly discussing really. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I think we're, you and I certainly both are are regularly talking about kind of like what it is what is it that we actually want how do we get there and how do we kind of get to getting there and all that sort of stuff within gaming right so yeah and after all the talk how how much closer are we yeah yeah <laughs> not yeah. i don't feel like we are. no i think i do think that's a, that's an important thing is to look back and recognize how much did kind of all of the the pre prep actually add to the final game, right? Like if you spend 30 hours trying to find the right game and then you play mm. one session, there's a there's a real like question of the the sort of payoff on investment, right? Return on yeah, investment. Yeah, I always talk about that. Our ROI, yep. Yeah. Return on investment is not good, but yeah. it seems like I don't know the only other way to do it. I'm terrible at reading rule books, so unless I play the game, I'm not going to know, but 
you have to at least read enough of it to get to a place where you're playing it in a way that it's actually, you know, intended by the designer. Yeah. And how can you be like making up your own rules until you actually do play it intended as a designer and find things that you prefer. Yep. So, yeah, when people just say that, oh, there's a game for that. You should try this or you should try that. Yeah, it's easy to say, but yep. unless you're going to game master it for me. And even then, maybe I don't like the way that you run the game. You know, yeah. it's it's so many factors are involved in, in gaming that it's it definitely can make you feel a little frustrated, which isn't necessarily good for mental health. Um, but when you actually do all the stars align and you get those games with the players, with the GM that you like and really, you know, push you forward and make you really have that uh, FOMO in the future. It's like, oh, man, I don't want to miss out on this game because I might get that feeling that I had, which some people call nostalgia, I think. But I don't think that's all that it is because if nostalgia was all that it was, it wouldn't have the draw that it has today because those guys don't have nostalgia, but they still love playing, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's just one of my thoughts. Yeah. Well, anyway, in addition to um – playing AD&D 2E and a bunch of other stuff with the the, the Kevin Madison crew and then um, a short-lived Ash. I also did, I, I ran One Ring for a while, um, which was really, One Ring 2nd Edition, the, the new one from Free League. We started playing um, a little after the Alpha Rules came out from Free League and then we played all the way through um, a couple of months ago um, after this, the, the finalized core rules that went to the printer had come out as PDFs. Um, so we got a, and we were playing adventures from the first edition of the one ring, um, which worked pretty well. It, it, there were a couple of things that were a little bit tricky to, uh, transfer over, um, Specifically, there's some monsters in first edition that don't exist in second edition, um, by which I mean that second edition is set much more in Ariador instead of the area around Mirkwood. So there aren't That's giant spiders. Giant spiders are a big thing in Mirkwood, but they're not really a big mm-hmm. thing in um, Ariador. Ariador, yeah. yeah. So that's so there aren't giant spider rules in. Um, second edition so i had to sort of do something on the fly when i realized that i didn't have any giant spiders in the bestiary so anyway um but that game was really good um really fun and i'm still playing with those guys actually we've shifted to what we're going to do for a little while is play um one shots and the idea is that um we can do a, a couple of one shots hopefully with different gms so like i'm doing the one on saturday but hopefully one of the other guys will gm something um two weeks after that and then we'll sort of go back to all of the things that we did one shots of and say this is what we want to play more of um mm, nice which i think it's a it's a nice idea right it's kind of a yeah, cool concept sure. to to try out a couple things and you get like not just the different games but also the different styles of gming too right which i think is something that um some groups do and some groups don't i really like having a group that i have played with regularly where both i am not the only gm and no other person is the only gm if that makes sense if that right the idea of like we've got this gaming group where um, of GMs. Of GMs, essentially. And sometimes we play Arlen's game, and sometimes we play Hobbs's game, and sometimes we play something else, right? But that it's, it's, uh, it seems to me that that's a, a different relationship to 
the group, then what sometimes happens with like the GM comes up with, here's the game I want to run. Here's all the stuff for it. I'm looking for the specific people. And it's as a result of that, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it becomes very much that GM's game sometimes, right? That it's, it's you know, I want to run this adventure path or this adventure in this system, these nights, who can come do that with me? And then it's mm-hmm. sort of that person's thing, right? Which is yeah. it's not necessarily, yeah. if all you want to do is kind of show up at the right time and, and sit down and get in character and play, I think that can be very convenient if you don't have to worry about that kind of shared ownership, right? Um, but I, I do think that there's something to be said for this idea of the kind of shared ownership of a group of friends who are playing RPGs, but are kind of, it's not just one person's thing, right? If that makes sense. Yeah, anyway, I think so. That I got way off track. Um, I also did, I did some Savage Worlds stuff, ran some Savage Worlds stuff and played some. And I'm trying to think of the other, other stuff from earlier in the year that I can't remember now. So played with my family for a while, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, but we have, we have put that on hiatus cause we used to play on Thursday nights as a family. And then now, um, I'm doing, uh, face to face with, with my parents and often my sister and her boyfriend over at my parents' house on Thursday nights as a kind of higher level of interaction, if that makes sense. So we're not, playing RPGs on Thursday nights, but having dinner and talking about, yeah, having dinner and talking and and doing a kind of, you know, more traditional hangout session than RPGs are, you know? So anyway, um, that sucks. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Guess who I'm not inviting back. Um, (laughs) no. Um, but yeah, I guess that's, that's a lot of the, the, the one ring game I think is really the highlight of my GMing this past year to be honest. Really? Yeah. It, it was it was a really fun game. I really like the One Ring 2E rules. I think they've made... There are a number of changes from 1E, but I think that basically all of them are for the better. Um, they, in my opinion, make the game more flexible, and they allow for the GM to um, respond to players' going off script or shifting things or things like that in a much more natural way, I think. One of the things that I did not like as much about first edition of The One Ring, although I think it is it is understandable why it's the case, is that um, basically everything in the game happens in phases. Um, and then there's this sort of neutral, unfazed time, if that makes sense. But the core of the mechanics deal with this idea of journeys and audiences and um, combat. And the idea is that these are sort of the three big things that you do. You go on journeys over the world map, you talk to people and try to convince them of what you're trying to convince them of, and you fight bad guys, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is that they had a very, um, it's a pretty strict structure to like shifting between phases or things like that. So like if you're on a journey and you have a random combat, you basically have to say, okay, we're putting the journey on pause now and shifting into combat mode. And we're going to all roll our skills to see how many bonus dice we get for this particular 
time that we're in combat mode and we're going to, you know, everybody's going to sort themselves into the combat um, stuff and all that sort of stuff, which is not, I think it works well for, for pretty pre-planned adventures. Like if you go, okay, we're going to go on a journey to here and then we're going to fight the orcs that are here, right? That works fine. But if what you're trying to do is let's, you know, go from this place to this place and sort of see what happens, um, it's very difficult to kind of, the procedures of play don't really lend themselves to um, shifting game modes very quickly. And they don't really lend themselves to feeling invested in um, the game mode that you shift out of when you shift into a new one. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I think there's some clunkiness to the first edition. That second edition did a good job of turning into kind of gameable mechanics that are fun, that allow the game master to... Um, transition transition much more much more smoothly right that you can mm -hmm. if you run into like a party of orcs in second edition it's much easier to do like a quick combat that covers the encounter with the orcs and then get back into the journey and not feel like you have lost all your momentum from the journeying phase when you start it back up and there's yeah, also no, the no, other and there's also the other like you don't even have to necessarily do a full combat there's a whole like kind of skill challenge concept that is much more thoroughly elaborated in second edition where you could just say okay there's some orcs what do you guys want to do and you don't have to be like you know okay if we're going to fight we have to go into combat mode you can just sort of go oh you want to hide okay um pick whoever's leading and have them roll stealth mm -hmm. right that, that sort of concept is much more thoroughly present in second edition which i think is a good thing yeah, for sure. I think you should be able to have choices because otherwise you're certainly narrowing the gamut of options of the players. And I think there is nothing that people want more than options yeah. in today's day and age. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think this gets back to the idea of like the the sort of um, double-edged sword of, of providing structure in the game, right? Is that first edition definitely has more structure to the specific phases of play that it expects you to go through. But what second edition does by kind of removing some of that structure is allow for a much more flexible engagement with the game system as a whole, right? It's, it's less of you have to do these things that we expect you to do and more of here's the rules that are going to be used to, model doing all of the various things that the players might want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a different philosophy in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, I thought the, the one ring second edition campaign was really good. So it was, it was a whole lot of fun and, uh, I had a lot of fun GMing it and, um, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything. I've been rambling for a while about it now, so I'm going to, shift years but okay so what are you what are you thinking about for 2022 in terms of gaming um I, I, did i already go over my two things that i'm most interested in right now i haven't yet right uh you talked about that you're known for ose and lfg but you didn't really talk about being interested in anything now i don't think so what i want to so I have like revitalized my legendary Kalmata game mm -hmm. where I, it's like, it feels like people, there's a, enough people now that are interested that a single, like if I was just to say, Hey, it's a weekly game, 
there'd be way more players than could just play yeah. once a week, right? Definitely. You know, like the the pool of players is is regrowing. Like old people are coming back and new people are also joining in. And I have finally finished a new thing that I've been waiting to do for like three years. And it's not finished. It's still certainly a work in progress. And it is this um, dynamic, emergent, ruined city that's still inhabited, basically. So what I'm talking about is is Zadabad, Mm -hmm. which comes from the product that Kalmata is based on, the treasure vaults of Zadabad. But instead of the main starting area that I've always used being Sindanor, which is just like a small native village in the Plague Bay, it has become this more like the dwellers of the Forbidden City, ruined city from that module I-1, Dwellers of the Forbidden City, which is in the middle of the jungle and is inhabited by these alien-esque folk known as the Salvin. So parts of it is not ruined, but parts of the city are ruined. But instead of building it out in uh, like an individual uh, empire or what, what was the overlord thing called city state of the invincible overlord where they detailed each and every building and who was in it or village of Hamlet or N one or all those many old uh, products where they detailed everything very specifically. I don't want to have to do that. And I don't want to force the players to do that, to walk through and then engage with each building trying to decide what it is. Mm -hmm. So I want random tables that I've crafted or that I've stolen or uh, re appropriated to dynamically create the emergent story around this environment. And how do you do that? That's, that's what I'm really interested in at right now. So uh, I had my first session of it last night. Um, and I felt like it went pretty well, but I also felt like there's some other things that I could do in order to make it better. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing I'm super interested in. Another thing has been plaguing. Well, I mean, that, I mean, I've been working on that thing for three years. And by now, actually, like, getting it good enough that I could just let it go free and run it, it reminds me of, like, uh, the Sicilian Tubes, which was an um, kind of a mega dungeon environment with a shifting clock as the tide changed that – you know, it was a bunch of underground caverns that I didn't necessarily want to have to write, draw every single cavern out. I wanted to dynamically create emergent environments for players to explore that then they could come back to later. So like if they found, you know, the, the deep caves of the mud men, they know where that is, but I don't have a giant map of this huge mega dungeon that eventually leads to the cave of the mud men, if that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. I just have these transitional places that you can explore dynamically. And if there was an encounter, I could have a single map that kind of um, uh, epitomizes that location with any individual uh, adversary that might be there or challenge or whatever it is. But I don't have to have this massive overreaching under mountain type dungeon that I'm creating. I only have to do the small parts that matter which is going to alleviate me and it's also going to allow the game to be emergent uh, during play, which I, I really feel is an important thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, really... Yeah, my imagination is, is taken over by it. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Well, that's really interesting because I'm thinking about a couple of things. One is um, I 
I I showed you Iron Sworn one time, right? Yep. I think yep. so. So I don't know if you have, have kept up with the game, but they're now on two. So there's Iron Sworn, and then there's an expansion called Iron Sworn Delve, and then the new full game that uh, Sean Tompkin is making is called Iron Sworn Starforged, which is the sci-fi version. But Delve, one of the really kind of interesting concepts of it is it's built around this idea of because um, Iron Sworn has its sort of roots in Powered by the Apocalypse. So it's about moves, right? Moves, which, you know, mm-hmm. in the fiction, your character does this. Here's how we mechanically arbitrate what happens. And it tells you what the result of that move is, right? And so there's specific moves for specific situations. But what Delve does is it creates this new move that is basically Delve, Delve. Right, the idea of you move through the space that you're in deeper into the dungeon is kind of the core concept. And so you don't have like dungeon maps or any kind of like, um, you know, yeah, you don't have like a map of what it is. You just sort of have like, here is what I was doing. I'm going further in what mm-hmm. is the nature of what I'm encountering here? So it's it's sort of like a, a point crawl concept in some ways, right? Where you just have like the specific points that you're at and as you go deeper, the points change and all that sort of stuff. But it one of the cool things about it, of course, is that it's built around this idea of solo emergence, right? So as you delve, you're sort of finding out in real time what it is that you are what it is that your character is kind of getting into as you go into it right that you you're generating up the new the nature of what they're coming up against as you yeah it's more abstracted as opposed to pre-created yeah yeah but see one of the problems with that my man is i when i'm playing I'm usually drawing a map of what we're going through. Yep. So where do, where does that tactile sensation go or where does it, I mean, do I want to run a game that I would enjoy playing or do you not need to because the game is so more engaging or emergent because of that immersion that's yeah. existing with the emergent play that it fulfills, you know, a, a different itch. It scratches a different itch. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure either what my sort of, uh, in between version of that was what I did for the Ash game, which is I had a bunch of random tables for the nature of like what is in this hex, because I had a hex map, right? And so I had a bunch of random tables for like, what I did first was I had a random chance of there being something in the hex that I did ahead of time. I did it, so I made, I made the map in hex kit and then I sat and had a dice roller roll like, you know, 20d10, over and over again and on every 10 i just mark that hex right with a there's something there that sort of thing um anyway but then i what i did on um the sort of second stage of that is there's a whole um set of random tables for like what is thing in the hex and then once i have a sort of explanation for kind of a little bit about what it is then i sort of build it up as a specific location Right. So I say like, oh, it's a small dungeon of like, you know, 1D6 rooms. So then I go to like, you know, a free dungeon mapper or something and try to get an idea for a layout and then, you know, draw the specific map and all that sort of stuff. And then doing it all in roll 20 for me makes it really easy to keep all that stuff that I just have, you know, this page is called the hex number. Right. And so every time they go to that hex, I can just always go to that specific page and have the same dungeon that I drew for 
that thing. But that's that's a right. The players aren't experiencing any emergence from that. Is the thing right? They're not really experiencing anything generated on the fly. They're ju- they're experiencing the kind of pre-created material that I have happened to use random tables to try to define as I create it, right? Which I think is something different than what we're talking about, really. Sort of, sort of. I mean, there are aspects to it that I think are similar. Like, you know, they're connected at their, in their DNA, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I mean, the emergent play is still, isn't just you having to do an improvisation at the table. Yeah. That isn't, that isn't necessary in that. Like, I mean, I could do what I'm talking about. Like I could roll up a session for Sicilian tubes ahead of time before the players even go just to make it faster. And so I'm not having to make it up in my head and I can create a map. And that's still, is that emergent player? Isn't it? You know, I don't know. I think there's probably a lot of a discussion that you could have about it. Yeah. To me, emergent play m- maybe feels more like I don't necessarily have an overarching story that I created, mm-hmm. but a story is created by these random events that I have put together. Like what a solo when you're playing a solo game, mm-hmm. I don't really do that personally, but when I hear people talk about it or I listen to them do it, it sounds very much like the connections that I create from multiple sessions to create some sort of story or yeah. like when something's created at, at my table, I'm different than some GMs because some GMs are going to say it only matters what happens at the table. Nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. That's where all the play is, is at the table and what happens when we're logged into that roll 20 session. And other than that, it doesn't matter. I don't necessarily agree with that because I liked for Varus Missilitude to exist or this concept of a living uh, game is that stuff is happening regardless if the players are touching it in some way or mm-hmm. not. It probably doesn't start until they touch it or it doesn't necessarily matter to the players until they engage with it, mm-hmm. but it's happening. You know, it's happening behind the scenes. And if you don't mess with it, then it's still going to happen. Yeah. And I think to me that gives a certain immersion to the game. And I still feel like it's emergent because yeah, I like what you're saying is, is like a lot of my hexes have pre-written things in them, but as the group is traveling through that hex, if I roll a layer on the random encounter and that's not what I have built there, I'm going to make a layer in there and figure it out and connect it to what else is in the hex. Mm-hmm. So that is absolutely emergent play mm-hmm. or a random encounter happens. Well, now I got to go to my tables and under- figure out, well, what would the, what would these bullywogs be doing in this desert? How'd they get there? What's going on? You know, and that probably wouldn't happen, but like I usually have a, a section on any of my encounter tables for any given area mm-hmm. that is called incursion which means I'm going to go to the nearby area and roll on that. And for some reason that whatever was in that random encounter is now in this new region. And so that's totally emergent. So like then in my head, I'm making up why would they be here? And that usually happens during play. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm totally into it. That's one thing. I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into that, but like I'm creating stuff and I'm talking to a lot of my friends that I know are big into that. And like trying to decipher the best way specifically for uh, Zadabad, what you were saying with filling your hexes. I mean, I kind of went through that when I was trying to like fill some more hexes in Kalmata that hadn't been seen yet. And like in the past, I've used, um, geez, I don't even know what his name is now. I mean, Rob Conley has stuff, Bat in the Attic blog on how to fill hexes. And But a lot of that stuff is how to actually 
create the entire hex map with like, all right, when does this particular biome or terrain shift into another one? Whereas that deep, I don't necessarily want to get into. But I mean, I've played in games where they don't even know, the GM doesn't even know what the biome is uh, primarily in the next hex until mm-hmm. they create it when you walk into it, right? Uh, but there's a lot of sitting around in that. And I mean, it's hard to uh, not get distracted when you're online playing in a game. You know, if you're sitting there, you can go go to the bathroom, you can hang out, talk to your buddy about, hey, hey, what do you think about this inside the game and still be involved while the GM is doing stuff? That's way harder in an online game, especially a streamed online game. Yeah. So no, I, I, I kind of totally agree the- about that, about the difference between sort of downtime and like I, and this gets back to, to, to kind of segue for a second about my point about like one ring second edition versus first edition is that like first edition, I feel like if the player said, Hey, we want to go somewhere on the map. You basically, as the GM have to say, all right, everybody take 10 minutes. I'm going to plot out the, the journey on the map and figure out how we're going to do this. Second edition, you just, you know, pull out the map and say, all right, we're moving from hex to hex. Right. Mm, that sounds a, cool. A totally different yeah. kind of philosophy. You're sort of doing the same. You're engaging with very similar kind of results in a lot of ways, but you're not doing that kind of front loaded prep that interrupts the flow of play in a lot of ways. But anyway, back to your Interests? Yeah. What, what's your second interest? Because you've only talked about one so far, and you said there were two. My second one is this turgid sci-fi that I've been talking about, like, almost my whole life, it feels like. I will, I will reiterate, I don't think turgid means what you means think it what means I think it means. in that yeah, specific I case. I know. It's it's certainly a stretch with you defining it that way. Uh, because it's not, re- I, like, hard sci-fi is what most people call it, but I don't I don't necessarily want the hard sci-fi so hard that you have to be a scientist or an engineer to consider space travel. Mm-hmm. Right. I just want it to be like, I can, I can just like in a fantasy game where a GM can create a situation for shenanigans and players can use the tools that they have in front of them, be it their character sheet, be it the environment that the GM has created be it their own thoughts that are beyond or manipulating uh, the scene or the players of the scene, be it their characters or NPCs or monsters or whatever, and get through that situation and do that in um, a science fiction game without it just being like the techno babble of uh, um, a Star Trek game. Like I feel like it's way easier for me to relate to it if it has some – comprehension or believability within science as we know it today i guess yeah so well i think there's a i think there's a really interesting way in which that taps into a a different kind of form of experience of sci-fi if that makes sense the idea being the difference between like how does the how do these things work and what is life like for the people who live in this environment Right. That what you're talking about, I think, stems a lot more from the idea of like, you know, you don't in the same way that you don't need to be able to build an internal combustion engine with your bare hands to drive a car. Right. We've made driving a car a lot easier than Mm -hmm. building an internal combustion engine in the future. Surely there will be or in one version of sci fi, assuming that we all don't die in the climate apocalypse, um, maybe there will be spaceships that you don't have to know how to you know, build the warp drive or whatever you're calling, you know, faster than light travel, however you want to put it to be able to fly the spaceship. Right. 
And that, mm-hmm. that kind of taps into this idea of the difference between kind of like how the world works and the experience of the world, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's the same idea when you look at a supers game that's yeah. based on what it's like to be a superhero as a superhero versus what it's like for normal people to be in a superhero world. Yeah. Or for superheroes to deal with normal people problems. Yeah. Realistically. Yeah, it very unquote. much goes into, uh, right, the difference between a a an RPG that is designed to emulate superhero comics and an RPG that is designed to be about people with superpowers, right? Those are two yes. fundamentally different things in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. And, yeah. right, what, what you're talking about is not how do you make the faster than light travel work, but what is it like to pilot a faster than light travel ship in a world where that is a real thing to deal yeah, with? Yeah, that's a like real that. thing. And then how, how do, how do we put that into play in a way that players can, you know, relate to it? I yeah. mean, it's not realistic, obviously, because yeah. faster than light travel really isn't realistic, but it is something that exists in, you know, the pulp mind or yeah. the, you know, the common group of our consciousness. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, I don't, they don't care about that in Star Wars, right? Only if it matters. So it's like travel at the speed of plot yeah. usually. Yeah. But maybe it would be interesting or it's for me, it's really easier, just easier to relate to it. Mm-hmm. Like even when I played superhero games, I don't usually play Superman. I usually play uh, not even Batman, more like kind of a Batman-esque type character who is a normal guy who's, a, a, you know, tried to get up to those levels, even yeah. though in some ways he can't. Yeah. Because I can relate to that. That's why I don't usually, I don't necessarily like to run games that have elves or dwarves or demi-humans because I, everyone just plays them all the same anyway, mm-hmm. right? So I've always felt like there's a, you should kind of, and it's hard for people to know what to do unless they know. And if it's a made-up homebrew world and it's not an IP that everyone is aware of, which takes it too far the other way maybe where you don't have enough room to to be creative in a, in an IP that's strongly been detailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm all over the place, but that's the other thing I've been interested in. You and I have been talking about game systems almost endlessly. And, uh, well, I've been talking about game systems almost endlessly. You've been, you've been listening, I think is. No, I have too. I've been saying, I even bit. made you make a character in traveler the other day, which was its own fiasco. That was, that is true. We did make, we made a traveler character who, uh, or I made a traveler character at Hobbs's direction, um, who has what, like three hundred thousand credits in his bank account, but he has the physical attributes of like a six-year-old. So that's interesting. Or a sixty-year-old. Or a sixty-year-old. Yeah. Which is what I would say is more appropriate in that situation. I um, I think Andy has a yacht, a space yacht. I think I think most sixty-year-olds are probably in better physical condition than most six-year-olds in terms of like raw muscle power and all that sort of stuff but i digress anyway i don't know man i don't know my my parents are like 57 and they're definitely well you know 57 is the new 37 so maybe 80 year old would be more appropriate that i guess that's fair but maybe in, in the traveler future, like life expectancies suddenly drop. And so we go back to, you know. Yeah, I don't 50. think that's it. Because <laughs> they have those rules for you to not be affected by it. Yeah, but then you have to that. take illegal drugs. and Who's going to make that choice? Don't you know, Hobbs? You're supposed to say no to drugs. I've heard you say that before. Yeah. Nancy Reagan said that. I should get this grinder off of my... 
And it's not like they can see it. <laughs> I mean, oh, until you shit. said something, they probably didn't even know it was there. Yeah, you didn't know it was there until I said what it was. Yeah, but I know you smoke weed regularly, so. <laughs> uh, not that regularly, honestly. I do more drops or edibles these days. Okay. Now that we've digressed into the the illegal drug section of the show, um, totally legal. Is I'm it legal Illinois. there? Yes. Oh, nice. We're we're never yes. going to get it here until we get it federally, right? Because yes, even though like, so not to digress <laughs> too much, but I will say that like when I was in high school, way easier to get weed as a fifteen year old than to get like any of the controlled substances as a 15 year old, right? Like all, all I'm doing is I'm making the case that if what you want to do is, you know, get kids not to do drugs, having it be illegal, but so proliferated that like you can go to any street corner and get some is not the way to do it. <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a whole different story. That's a whole, that's a whole, we don't need to talk anymore about that, but, um, yeah, turgid sci-fi. Yeah, man. It's a terrible name, I know. I know. It's just awful. Makes me it's makes just... me think of like 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 janitors cleaning up shit in in on a star destroyer, right? That's that's all really? I can think of when I hear turgid sci-fi. I just hear like Barbarella music in the background. Hmm. Well You know what Barbarella is? No. It was like Jane Fonda in a science fiction movie mm. with uh, very skimpy clothes on. Classic. Flesh Gordon would be another term. Mm. But that's not what I want to play. No, I don't want to put that out there. So you guys who do want to play that, don't give me a call and say I got the perfect game for you because that's not what I'm looking for. Okay. Um, oh, that's what I was going to. Have you read any Kim Stanley Robinson uh, I don't know, not by the author's name. Okay. What is it? Uh, he's got a, a trilogy of books about Mars that are called like Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. And then he's well, also, I think I've seen those, but I don't think I've read any of them. And those. then he's also got like one or two other books in the same universe. Anyway, um, they are long, serious, hard sci-fi that's about the colonization of Mars um, oh. that were written um, – far enough back that there's some kind of interesting like political stuff that he gets into about like the nature of anyway um they're they're not like a good forecast of what is going to happen to mars today um they might have been back when they were originally published but there's a, another book that is in the same universe called ice hinge ice hinge is a book about a um this structure that is found on one of like the moons of jupiter or something Many years after this kind of um, basically a civil war on Mars happens and there's a, a group that fled from Mars out trying to go further than anybody had ever gone before. And the question is, it's sort of this archaeological question about whether or not this is a structure that was created by them or by like some other intelligent life or maybe this is just sort of like a random thing that showed up in the universe because like you know in a random universe at some point this there's a possibility that something like this could happen anyway it's a pretty good book um in the sense of turning this kind of grand story of 
transformation through technology into a like a a plot with an actual theme um because there is a there is actually some kind of interesting thematic stuff to the mars trilogy when you get down deep into it but the surface level stuff is all like here's the technology that they used to figure out how to live on mars right because it's hard sci-fi and like a lot of hard sci-fi that's what they get into and ice hinge is different ice hinge is a story about people living in that universe who are yeah i get you it's not like the super dry rendezvous with rama heinlein yes. stuff but more uh, more like later like what it would have been like to live on rama or something yeah yeah it's 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 a story about people trying to understand their place in the universe that happens to take place in a hard sci-fi universe much more than a story that is a vehicle for explaining the scientific accomplishments that would be necessary to make these things happen. Anyway, your your discussion of turgid sci-fi made me think a lot about that. And that also sort of ties into some of the stuff I'm interested in because the concept of like the relevance of archaeology to the future world is something that I'm sort of been that I've been thinking about, right? Because we've been talking about this idea for a or I've been talking about this idea for a sci-fi game that blends this kind of Robin Hood element of like, you know, little guys trying to write injustice on some level, sort of space outlaw kind of space, right? This features pretty clearly in like space Western-y stuff too. Um, Firefly. Firefly, all that sort of stuff. But to also have this element of like kind of serious archaeology archaeology not as it is often presented in games but in the sense of like because i actually have a fair bit of background in modern archaeology and you know essentially the difference between indiana jones and like actually being in the trench digging for potsherds and stuff like that when you know it just occurred to me if you did you watch expanse or no i haven't watched any of the expanse no so i think there's a portion of that that exists in the expanse because Mm -hmm. Spoiler. Okay. Spoiler, they find, everybody. They it's find okay. these rings like in episode, in the season two or three mm-hmm. that leads them out of our universe because of some previous civilization that created interstellar travel by using this ring gate. Nice. And when you get inside the ring gate globe, then you can go to all these other places. And then so they've tried to colonize some of these other places mm-hmm. for different reasons, be them exploitation, be them getting away from everyone, whatever, mm-hmm. all the different ways. They try to control the ring gate so it's only certain people can get through. Mm-hmm. They try to do all these different things, but some things that happen when they get on these planets is they find these um, edifices or devices that have come from this previous civilization, and nobody has any idea how to deal with them or work with them. Mm-hmm. And it and there's I think there's an aspect of archaeology that exists in there. Mm-hmm. That's I've been calling it lore and saying that you're calling it the wrong thing, but really in some ways you're not. It's almost. Uh, the tropes of the game would be different when that's a main function other than, Hey, here is a crypt world that we want to just go to and find the stuff so we can sell it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different. And I mean, obviously Robin hood, there's certainly a Robin hood aspect in the expanse. When you talk about the belters who are, you know, of the three main cultures that exist in the expanse, you have the earthers, the Belters and the Martians mm-hmm. and the Martians are colonized from earth. 
giving them kind of that feeling of, hey, this is why we're here versus the Earthers who are like the old school England. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you have these belters who both Mars, Mars and Earth used to get the resources from the belt mm -hmm. and who felt like they've been downtrodden or oppressed by both the inners, they call them, both the Earthers and the Martians. So uh, you could have definitely a Robin Hood feel of that if mm -hmm. you know you are belters or Earthers who've been out in space for a long time or whatever, and then you're dealing with these ring worlds that you go to that are also trying to be exploited by the different factions of Belters, Earthers, and Martians. So I don't know. I mean, it's just like a, it's a kind of, I hadn't thought of it that way, but the Expanse system would probably not be what it's for. Yeah. Would not, would, because there's no rules in that, as far as I know, that really deal with, um, exploring this archaeology aspect yeah yeah i, I think i have the expanse it's, it's green ronin um age system right it's a sort of adaptation on from modern age which is itself from fantasy age which is itself from dragon age um i think i have a pdf copy but i don't remember i haven't i haven't read any of the expanse books or watched any of the show but what you've described makes me significantly more interested in it than basically anything else I've heard about it. So, well, I mean, and that's that's skipping all the stuff that they add onto a show to try to make it more popular with other people, like the love trilogies or the personal aspect of the individual characters. Yeah, you I know? don't care about any of that. Right, and that's what a lot of it is about. But if you look past that and you kind of consider this other stuff, but that's a that's a pretty high. That's a pretty not a good ROI, maybe, if all you're looking for is fodder for that, you know? Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I might watch it or download the book on my Kindle, the first book, at least on my Kindle, and read some. Yeah, and I don't know. I have not read any of the books, so yeah. I don't know how they are. Um, but uh, yeah, Expanse is one of my inspirations for the type of game I'm looking for. Yeah. Expanse, Firefly. I like the concept of colony world, mm -hmm. colony play, so staying inside the solar system. But it doesn't have to. Because then you don't necessarily have to have, quote unquote, faster than life or faster than light to yeah. stay in the solar system. Well, and that's that's and kind of an interesting distinction because for me, there's sort of two sides of it, if it makes sense. There's one side that is like Star Wars because I, I love Star Wars, right? And But Star Wars is not like... A, it's definitely not hard sci-fi, but it's not even... In some ways, it's not really even about what sci-fi tries to be about right in many ways it's no it's it owes, fantasy it owes a lot more to fantasy and especially to the idea now that it has grown from what it was in 1977 to in some ways like the idea of like medieval romance right that it's just this kind of story that keeps going that it's like you know oh there's more skywalkers and here's what they did right yeah i can see that i don't really know that much about that concept of what the Renaissance, like romance of the perilous kingdoms or whatever. Yeah. I don't even know. But well, anyway, I, I think, I think there's is, something to be said for that idea as like the, the core comparison is sort of to like a pulpy version of like what Crecky and Detroit might write in some ways for Star Wars. Anyway, but we're, we're getting off. The other thing is like basically um, Gene Wolfe's book of the new sun, which is also super medieval but it's like hard sci-fi medieval instead of 
soft apocalyptic side. stuff, right? Video. Or am I thinking of the wrong story? There's a little bit of apocalyptic stuff, but I, I, I said apocalyptic instead of apocalyptic, which is that's a whole new genre. I know apocalyptic, but um, uh, it's 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 everything that is presented that can be explained scientifically has a scientific explanation. There's some stuff that just like the really high concept technology can't really be explained, but it exists in a world that has fundamentally gone into this kind of medieval dark ages from its peak at a sci-fi world. And so the, the character, and it is deeply related to this idea of, um, kind of narrative voice, right? Severian, who it's him writing his memoirs, telling the story. And part of the point is that he does not understand all this shit, some of which we understand and some of which we fundamentally don't understand. And his way of telling the story is built around this idea of his kind of particular experience of this world rather than telling you, here's how all this stuff works, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I so know what you're talking about. So there's some stuff. There's some stuff that like just there's no explanation for. So they're just like basically Star Star Trek style transporters. Severian describes them as mirrors that reflect reality instead of light. And who knows what that means? And then there's yeah. some stuff like he uses the same. He uses the word ship both for like a sailing vessel on the ocean and for a vessel that travels through space, right? Because they're so both we right we we do, but we sort of instinctively know the difference between the two and are prepared to state that generally, right? Yes, we use the same word, but if somebody said, hey, look at that ship, and they were pointing to, like, the shuttle, you would know what they meant, but you would kind of be like, if if somebody else said, don't you mean a galleon? They would be like, what? What, what I mean is that, what I mean is that Severian um, <laughs> is is the, the the kind of narrative voice is invested in this idea of this kind of um, remarkable polysemy of words that um, exists in this sci-fi dark ages. Right. That a gun is sort of like a... 16th century archivist and also like a Star Wars style laser pistol, right? And that's that's part of and that's really deeply related to kind of thematically what the Book of the New Sun is about. But um, anyway, the the idea what I'm getting at is that my sort of sci-fi that I want is basically kind of torn between those two poles in many ways of like I want a story that is you know fantasy adventure but in space and part of me that wants like i want a story that is like what's it like to be a medieval peasant when like you know there are also cyborgs who might you know hunt you down if you try to escape as opposed to real life where it's just you know regular knights <laughs> isn't isn't that uh uncle what's his face on tatooine hmm? uncle owen luke's yeah, Uncle Owen, isn't that what he is? Like a regular peasant in Star Wars? Kinda, I guess. Right? He was a wind, wind farmer or something? He's a moisture like farmer, right? That's what the moisture farmer, what the towers yeah. are, is they collect dew or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't think. Know. But that's but I mean, see, that is something that I'm interested in as well, because it also has that Mandalorian space western feel that uh what do, what do these guys do when something happens or 
it could be anything. They could discover a passage into something that's unusual that they try to explore or figure out. Or while they're gone, the Jotuns show up and destroy it a la Conan. And now what do they do? What, what is what, yeah. they, what happens? Well, and, and to get back to the Robin Hood thing, like Star Wars, right? Star Wars is built on that, right? It's, it's yeah, the, for sure. the little rebels fighting against the big evil empire trying to, you know, create a more perfect system by blowing up the Death Star. I think all that gets a little muddied when you start to look at the entirety of uh, of what that is. You know, like oh, we used to be a republic, but like, oh no, I totally, I, I really and, fundamentally agree with you about that. That like, I think that you should like watch the original trilogy as sort of its own thing, and watch the prequels edited down as sort of their own thing, and then don't watch the sequels because I don't like them very much. But you know, and then watch the Mandalorian. And the Clone Wars, both Clone Wars versions, and sort of think about the idea of like unreliable narration as it relates to Star Wars. And could both of the Clone Wars series be true? Because there was, so you probably were, obviously you were not like a child that was really into Star Wars in 2003, but um, Cartoon Network did a 2D animated series of the Clone Wars. And then there is now another 3D animated series of the Clone Wars. And right, the, the original one was supposed to lead into um, Revenge of the Sith, but then the new one adds a bunch of stuff and tells a kind of totally different story with some of the same characters. And there's something kind of fascinating about that, right? Like, I don't know. I think I think there's something interesting to be. Explored. I haven't watched either of them enough to know. Yeah, I I know that. I'm just sort of. But I about see it. the pieces that they talk about. Like, well, like kind of kind of in the way of like like what if you had a Batman movie where you edited together some of Michael Keaton's Batman and some of Christopher Nolan's uh, Christian Bale's Batman and like you had one scene where the Joker in one moment is Heath Ledger and one moment is Jack Nicholson. And wouldn't that be kind of a weird thing to create of like the sort of, I don't yeah, know. It's too fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but that's so, so yeah, that's, that's one of You would want to, you're trying to do that in a game. Not necessarily no, in a game. We've got off. Okay. I, I meant more like what if, what if somebody took, the Batman 1989 and the Dark Knight from 2008 and just edited them both together into one two-hour movie and it was just sort of like a blend of the two. Well, I mean, why story. stop there? Why not just add the 1960 Adam West and then drop in some, I don't know, Ben Affleck and to tell a story about with all of them. I mean, yeah, that sounds it awesome. It kind of shifts like a multiversal kind of, Schrodinger of like when they made decisions and how that yeah. happened or I don't know. Yeah. And that's, and that's basically what Lamort Darthur is, except that's Arthurian literature instead of Batman. And that's part of why I love it so much. So, you know, mm. yeah. Anyway, the, we should talk more about like what I actually want to run in the new year instead of just talking about <laughs> editing Batman movies and all that sort of stuff. Um, what else do I want to run? Oh, we talked about supers a little bit. Hobbs doesn't want to run a superhero wrestling game or play in one, and I just can't believe it. Um, he also doesn't want to play in any games that are based on like classic animated series, and I also... That's not true. I totally want to, but my classic animated animation is different than yours. 
because of our age difference. Dundar, Herculoids. Again, I don't. Those are classic to me, but you don't know shit about them. I've never seen Thundar, but he doesn't want to do Transformers or GI Joe or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, there's okay. So to to step away from that discussion for just a second, there's a Teenage Mutant. So there are live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, right? That they made after Mm -hmm. the cartoon. And the first two of them are set like in New York and they're like people in suits. And then the third one, they get transported through a time machine to like actual Sengoku era Japan. And that sounds amazing. I'm so, I haven't ever seen it, but I desperately want to because that sounds like such an awesome con. Like, doesn't that sound like just a great concept for an RPG campaign? Your mutant ninjas in new york and then you get sent back to medieval japan and you have to figure out how to like deal with that mm. sounds like too much i think it sounds super fun and like weird. what would what would uh what like what kind of codified mechanics would you be looking for would you be trying to assimilate into that culture somehow in all of the all of the problems that would occur from the teenage mutants basically i think you'd, you'd have like, attitude you'd have like both of them like half of the party would be trying to build a time machine to get back and half of them would be like let's be daimyos in medieval japan yeah, and then the that. game would really just be about them arguing about the merits of both of those plans do you really like games like that where the players are just constantly arguing about the plans <laughs> Silence. <laughs> I. That is a complicated question, I think. It is, isn't it? I think it is fair to say that I really do both have like a theoretical and a practical um, appreciation for games in which the players do not necessarily agree on what is the best solution. Is it the players or the characters? Both, I guess, is what I would say, is that both the players and the characters don't necessarily agree on what is the best solution. In practice, I will say that um, arguments over what's the best plan when we both agree on the goal, 90% of the time, they just bore me to tears, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if we're spending an hour trying to decide on, like, what's the best way to do X, and we all agree that we want the same result from X. We just can't really figure out what's the best way to do it. And we just sort of sit there spitballing for an hour. I'm like that. I don't care. Somebody else just decide, please. I just want to kill the orcs once we get there. Um, But discussions about like, do we think that achieving X goal is really in keeping with like our ethos as heroes? That interests me a lot, right? Like when it's, when it's not like, how do we achieve X, but what do we think about various competing goals and our characters and players have kind of different perspectives on that. And we're trying to discuss like, you know, do we want to right? like, like the idea of, so for instance, in the, in the Witcher video games, they do a lot of like, you have to make binary choice between two things because you can only be one place at once. So like, you know, do you save the person in the burning building or do you go after the arsonist who started the fire? Right, that sort of thing. And in practice, I think that gets a little tired um, pretty quickly, especially when it feels forced. It's like, 
Mass Effect, right? Does yeah. that too. Yep. A lot of computer RPGs do that sort of thing. In and that's related to the idea of like branching story as it is in computer games, right? But mm-hmm. what I'm what I'm getting at is that conceptually I think there is something to be said for that. And and I think practically there's something to be said for that concept of a, a decision that is based on kind of what do the characters, for instance, something like what do the characters believe is right rather than how do we achieve what do we believe is right? I totally am on board with that. And I think you know that because yeah. you've played enough games with me that I like to play characters that don't necessarily fit in with yeah. all of the other characters, but still want similar goals. So it's not bad enough that they're like always a lone wolf that are yeah, a huge yeah. pain in the ass, but they are sort of like kind of like a B level foil to the other characters key in point would definitely be my dirt elf yep elanian right who's like oh no we should definitely turn into this slightly undead guy and protect these things that have that are really the underlying issue they could save the night below as opposed to just yep. trying to go and kill all the orcs yeah and, and i i i really appreciate your interest in that and i think and that to me is where that's that's why i want robin hood in my sci-fi game right is not just because i like the idea of sci-fi criminals but because i really want like you know one character says we need to steal from the rich to give to the poor and one character says is destabilizing the structure of this society going to be worse for the poor than giving them the rich stuff right and and having that kind of as a serious element of like i guess what i'm getting as this idea of like themes in our rpgs right and to me one of yeah, the core moral codes yeah one of one of the kind of core elements of a theme is has to do with in in an rpg has to do with the idea of characters and players making meaningful decisions where they're not that are that are actual decisions right like the game master is not saying hey you should really do this because that's what this game is about the game master is sort of presenting you know even sometimes it's as simple as here are two obvious options. You could do either of those, or sometimes it's more complicated. Like here's sort of let we have been describing the situation that this setting is in for the past 10 sessions. Session 11 starts. What are you going to do about this? Right. And, and that, mm-hmm. that also gets back to the idea of like sandboxing, right? Cause that's, that's, I think very much tied to the concept of the sandbox is that, you have to trust the players to um, to care about motivate things. themselves. Yeah, yeah. To to get involved, care about anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was just thinking, you know, yeah. uh, and I better say it before I forget it. Okay. This concept of what we're talking about with you know destabilizing versus what's the best way to help something. If you were to codify that. Would you like actually like kind of decide, you know, okay, this is like, just say, all right, we're, we are in um, a, a culture in the belt, mm-hmm. right? And we're basically ma- mainly mining and we're creating resources for Mars and Earth. And we, some of, many of our people would have very, be very, have a difficult time going to Mars or Earth, but those places are considered like the dream place. Mm-hmm. And it may be the Earth or, or the Belter dream to have a house on Earth or something, but they really would never be able to live there because they've been in zero G gravity their whole lives. Mm-hmm. But so now we are going to be rebels fighting against the Earth and Martian. Uh, imposition upon our culture. Mm-hmm. 
like how, you know, uh, not even like what combat system would you use? How would you keep track of how, what the effect the players and, you know, any in the NPCs even are having on the level, like how much are you going to allow your setting to change depending on what the players do and what you allow your NPCs to do to forward their motivations? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I would have a lot of mechanism, specific mechanisms for um, setting change. And I know I'm, I'm all about mechanisms generally, but I think it's fair to say that what I would probably do is say that, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to make the call as the GM about what the effect of this kind of specific, like one moment is going to have ripple effects, but I'm mostly going to have it be my call as the GM. I think I would make some level of kind of, um, I would like some idea of mechanisms that relate to the kind of larger world not necessarily specifically as like, if you do this, this happens, but in the sense of like, you know, I would want to say like, like for instance, if, if let's say we're in a sci-fi game and it's, you know, Belters versus earth. And I say, okay, um, their combat power is 10. Your combat power is two. What are you going to do to improve your combat power? If it comes to war, right? I think I would have like they're not going to win that war. Yeah, That's I would just have a known thing. So you can't really do war. So you have to yeah, figure out other things. I would definitely do. have like numbers and mechanisms to s- try to I, specifically describe. Like, here's what is going to happen if you follow certain paths. In the sense of like, this is how the universe is going. to... This is how I'm. I guess what I would say is, this is how I as the GM are going to am going to try to model that if that's the direction that these things go. Right. Right. Not not necessarily. I just would think. Yeah. I was just thinking it would be cool if there was something that like, all right, the players decide that this is what they're going to attempt and they could see, you know, like uh, the charity ball fills up yeah. as the charity comes in. Well, as the things they do fill up the ball, they can feel like they are actually achieving their goals. So they can really feel like, and that there's other, there's many, many ways to do that in an RPG yeah, yeah. game. You can do it through news feeds that you make up. You can do things, yeah. but if you actually had like some kind of codified way to control that or like show, okay, you know, your universal dollar bill is worth this now compared to what it was before. So you could be economically achieving your goals through that or something. I don't, I don't, it's just like a, I mean, I don't know how much I I wouldn't want to play like a stockbroker in that, but I would be interested in like, you know, what it's like for those people to live under that oppressive feeling or their perception of being oppressed, even though maybe it's better for them the way that it is. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by that. That's certainly I have always kind of liked the idea of a board gamey feel of, all right, this is the place that you're at, and how do you build that place up to make it better? Whether that's a zombie game and you're just in a house that or your home base, or that is a colony that you're a part of in a space game, or if that's a caravan that's going from the east to the west in uh, in the 1800s. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's just such a fascinating idea about building something with play other than the rewards that play normally gives in most role-playing games. Yeah. Have that play as well, but also have this other thing that's that's happening that gives you motivation outside of just you have to make up your own motivation in my sandbox. Yeah. You know? And I think there's I think there are a couple of things that I would be interested in in terms of 
mechanical modeling. So one of one of the core ideas I think of a lot of RPGs is the the idea of engaging with the system allows you to engage with the system more meaningfully. And what, understanding how that works is such a big deal. It's like yeah. system mastery in yeah. some ways. And right? what what I mean is specifically the idea of like in D&D you kill things and get loot and level up and therefore can take on bigger and badder things, right? That's not the only thing that you can do in D&D, but that's really the core of a lot of people's D&D experience has to do with this idea of, you know, what do you, how do you encourage the players to level up so that they can do more of that, right? On a bigger scale, right? You start with fighting 10 orcs and by level 10, you can fight a thousand or whatever, however you want to put it in those terms. So I think there would be something of the idea of um, engagement with the world allows for more meaningful engagement with the world, if that makes sense. I'm not entirely sure how to do that. The The sort of first idea that I had that sort of relates to that is that at one point I wanted to do a kind of um, superhero World War II game that started very kind of street superhero pulp and gradually increased in power. And part of the idea was that as characters kind of fulfilled missions and did things to affect the war effort, they got different things related to character creation for when their character dies. That it sort of goes back to this sort of Pendragon idea of you're not just playing your knight, you're playing your knight's family that like legacy. Yeah. Legacy that the, the whole idea being that like you have to go on, the, like I want the players to want to go on the missions cause they know that their character is going to die. But when they die, they get more cool stuff to use to be more of a badass on the mission so that they can take on bigger and bigger things to have a greater and greater effect on the world. Right. Be a cool story. A, and it's a whole story, yeah. not just the individual story. Yeah. But that, and, and, but I think the, the issue with that in some ways is that that's really fundamentally built around this kind of um, military advancement perspective. And that's not really what we're talking Which about. Which might Robin suck Hood. too. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Yeah. No, not at so all. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily use something like that. I think it would be interesting to do something kind of similar to Pendragon, but with the traits system. Um, that Because in Pendragon, I don't know how much you remember, but characters have traits that reflect their... Um, High and lows that are like... Yeah. It's, it's spell out their the person, two sides, the totality of their personality. And they, they define sort of the personality. On a, um, I see it more as a like instinctive level of personality, not necessarily that your traits don't define how you behave in every situation. They define sort of your gut instinct. That's how I see it. Different people see it in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. But that's, that's. I don't have a ton of uh, experience with it, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and one of the things because you may be trying to yeah. shift aspects of that, and so but you kind of have to play within it because yeah. there's codified rules that help you decide how your character acts yeah. and you have to use those to your advantage through system mastery to get where you want that character to be within your story. Exactly. And I, I think one of the things that Pendragon does that's actually um, really clever is that Pendragon doesn't provide a lot of outside um, value judgments about a lot of those personality things. There are specific bonuses that you get. For instance, depending on your religion, there are different bonuses that you get um, that reflect you being sort of an avatar of that religion. Being pious in that religion has different meanings for different religions. But there's not like a, hey, this is what 
is right, right? Because part of the point of all these traits is that like, you know, sometimes you need to be valorous and sometimes you need to be prudent. And those are two competing things that are defining of how a person responds to situations. So I think it would be really interesting to have that sort of structure, not just for the characters, but for elements of the world, right? Like the idea of like, you're in charge of a fantasy kingdom, your fantasy kingdom has 1010 on everything, but your character doesn't, your character has like a specific way that they like to behave. And as you play through the game and make meaningful decisions, maybe the the character of that organization that that kingdom starts to shift a little bit right and this goes back to the sort of idea of legacy that like you might not want to you wouldn't want to have that happen too quickly because then it wouldn't feel very real but if for instance you played through like hey we're adventurers in this kind of war turn world trying to make this place our own i think it would be an interesting way to say like okay this this kind of particular thing that is yours is starting to reflect reflect that, right? It's starting to reflect its Eunice, right? That like, you know, maybe it's only like just 11 or just 12, but that's more than where it started when it was just 10 arbitrary 10. And that that sort of reflects the influence of your character who is like just 18, right? I think that would be something, I'm not entirely sure how you would make that happen yet. But I think that would be an interesting idea of like sort of a, a sort of like, like for lack of a better term, measure the averages in a culture and see them change. Right. That's like a, I mean, in some ways that's, as you would say, fundamentally different from what I was talking about. Yeah, I think so. In you're a lot of shifting ways. it to, yeah, your like cultural norms or paradigms and mm -hmm. what those are as opposed to fighting against, you know, the empire as yeah. Robin Hood, but I did t type that in uh, Pendragon sci-fi and I see there's a thread on Reddit about it. I think there, there is somebody who made like a mech version of Pendragon, um, which is honestly like kind of like mechs on Mars, but it's about, but it's the same sort of stuff as Pendragon is the idea, I think. So I don't know. This isn't what, that's not what this is. That's not what that one is. is. Oh, well, oh. but I, I could see that being, something because they do talk about the armor and such of a knight could be something similar like yeah. the battle armor of Martians, you know, yeah, in yeah. the expanse versus what other people have. But yeah. all right, so get that done and I'll be ready to play tomorrow. Exactly. That's what we're that's what we're doing later tonight, right? It's playing Oh my God. <laughs> no. Um Yeah, yeah, if you haven't figured out. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I do think I think there's a lot of I think the thing for me is I don't really have like the one or two specific things that I really want to explore, I kind of still am in the stage of having sort of a morass of related things that haven't really been sharpened to the degree that they need to be to really become games. Um, and that's okay, right? That's, that's a stage of the process, right? You need, you need the sort of raw material that you then work on to, to become the finished product. Um, I just have a lot more raw material than finished product right now. God, yes. And I have, speaking of finished products, I've got so many things I need to read from drive through, but that's it. Okay. Oh, God. I'm not talking about that today. Yep. Anyway. I fortunately um, don't have as many things on my hard drive as I need to read anymore. Mm. Not because I finished reading them, but because I lost my hard drive. Yep. 
As always, you know, whatever <laughs> helps get you through that uh, TBR stack, right? Yeah, whatever your system is, man. Yeah, however, however it works for you, that's. I I should say that like you. You know. What? Well, you bought all those things on DriveThru, right? So you just re-download them. Yes. Yeah. Or I have them on my drive already. Or yeah. Whatever. So it's not like you don't have access to them. You just don't have them glaring in the face anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's why so. I qualified it specifically as on my hard drive. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> we've probably rambled for how long have we been how going? Long enough. I don't, I don't know. know. We're at like an hour and thirty minutes. So, you know, of of recording time according to OBS at least. So that's probably good. So for yeah, one you're episode. gonna. Cut. You're going to break that into three episodes, right? No. I don't care enough to do that. All right. So people are, people are just right, going to have to listen to the whole thing. Oh, God. In one stretch. I'm going to have a quiz That's at the it. end that I add later for all the things that we talked about and all the specific jokes that I said. I would fail the quiz and I was talking. I am aware of that, Hobbs. <laughs> but you know I'm a Vancean podcaster. I know. You are. <laughs> the stuff yeah. just comes out. I don't, yeah. I don't remember it afterwards. I mean, you think I remember half the things that I say? That's why I type so much is because mm. I don't remember it. This, like, that's like a, So I was talking with Hobbs about like all these ideas that I'm putting forward on Discord uh, with him and how I need to open up my Google uh, docs and start putting them into an actual document so that they're not just in random places on discord. So that's what I'm going to do later is start to put together like an actual record. But you know, the point being that this is right. This is the whole point of podcasting is now it's there forever and you don't even have to listen to it again if you don't want to. That's right. Exactly. I say put a fork in this. I think we're, Let's I go. think we're pretty much done at this point. I mean, I say done in the in the sense that we're both ready to stop this, not in the sense that we've covered everything that we possibly could cover. Correct. But yeah, um, thanks for being on, Hobbs. Was, uh, I appreciate it. Sorry it took so long to get the scheduling yeah, in. It's no big deal. It's not like I, I don't have a regular schedule for the podcast. Anyway, it's been since like mid-November that I published the last one, so it's not like the people were going to worry about waiting another couple days. So You should be readily chastised for that. I know. I'm sure I'm going to get lots of hate mail and things like that about how I'm not podcasting mm -hmm. enough, and we'll see. Anyway, um, yeah, let's call it here. Yeah, man. So, all right. Anything buddy. you want to say to the people before I close off? Stay alive. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Exactly. <laughs>